the great benefits of being finished with school is that I can read several books that I've been wanting to read um, but didn't have time to while I was in seminary. We're going to be in Psalm 30 tonight, Psalm 30. Uh, One of the books that I read uh, recently was a book by Kevin DeYoung, and I meant to bring it here to show it to you, but I have it down in my office. Uh, It's called The Hole in Our Holiness, The Hole in Our Holiness by uh, Kevin DeYoung, and I I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It is a very easy read, shorter book, and um, he argues that Christians usually fall into one of two extremes that our righteousness contributes to our standing before God, you know, that we actually um, contribute to to our justification. Or the other extreme is, you know, how we live doesn't matter. You know, I, I'm justified, so I can kind of just live however I want. And he shows that there is a, a responsibility to pursue holiness and avoid both of those extremes, that, that there is no holiness apart from real justification, a right standing before God. But justification also leads to proactive service to God. Not as a way to contribute to our standing before God. God doesn't accept us anymore because we are holy, because we're pursuing holiness, but really as a response to that, because of what God has done, this is how we respond with pursuing holiness. And one of the things that he helped clarify in my mind was... Uh, with regard to our righteous deeds as Christians. What our righteous deeds look like before God. And I'll talk about that when we get to verse 5. But I want to strongly recommend this book to you if if you enjoy reading and and reading some of those books that can be of spiritual profit to you. I would encourage you to to pick up that book. It's, It's about $10. You can get it at the Christian bookstore on Amazon or something. The Hole in Our Holiness. You will be spiritually enriched by it, I believe, as I was. Well, let's read this psalm. Uh, I'll read it out loud. You follow along. Psalm number 30, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to You for help, and You healed me. O Lord, You have brought brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, You His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me... I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by Your favor, You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid Your face. I was dismayed. To You, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise You? Will it declare Your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to You and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to You forever. This psalm is attributed to King David, as you see right under the the heading there. And it is a thanksgiving psalm. David here is thanking God for His deliverance. And he's going to tell us why, specifically because God spared him from 
physical death. That David was on the brink of death and God spared him. And so David gives thanksgiving to God and then he turns to the congregation of believers and says, you godly ones, you also give thanks. And then he turns back to God and basically repeats his, um, his thanksgiving to God in the last part of the psalm. So in verses 1 through 5, we see the testimony of praise for physical deliverance. This psalm is about believers testifying of God's deliverance, and they ought to invite others to praise God for His grace. When believers testify of God's deliverance, they they testify to others of God's grace. And so this first part is David's testimony of praise for physical deliverance. He acknowledges that that God is the one who delivers in verses 1 through 3. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up, and so on. The purpose of this psalm is to extol God or to give praise to God. And he says it right there at the beginning. I will extol. This is my point. This is why I put this song together. This is why I'm coming before the congregation of believers. I want to praise God. And why is he praising God? Well, the, the verse tells us, the second line says, You have lifted me up. You have lifted me up. God spared him. Notice how serious David's condition is in verses 2 and 3. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Okay, you brought me up my soul from Sheol. In other words, you you kept me alive. I was at the brink of death. We would say in our day, I had one foot in the grave. And yet, God, you spared me. You gave you restored my life back to me. I was on the brink of death and you spared me. The reason for David's deliverance is because God had healed him. Look at um verse two again. I cry to you for help and you healed me. So the ultimate reason we could say that that David was delivered is because God healed him. But the immediate reason is that David called to him for help. Look at verse 2 again. Oh Lord my God, I cried to you for help. So why did God deliver David? Well, in one sense, in the largest sense, well, it was God who healed him. But in a more, in a closer sense and in a more immediate sense, The reason God delivered David was because of David's prayer. Notice the contrast between these two verbs. In verse 2, I cried and then God healed. You healed. We are helpless. God is powerful to deliver. And, And this gives us a window into what our prayer ought to be. It ought to be an acknowledgement of our helplessness before God. You know, so many times when it comes to our prayers, we tend to to not really believe what we're saying. We ask for God's help, but we kind of think that we can do it on our own. And what David does is he comes to a point where he recognizes that he is utterly helpless apart from God. He recognizes Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. He he recognized something that would later be said by Jesus Christ Himself. We saw this morning, John 15:5. I am the vine and you are the branches. You need to abide in Me because apart from Me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. 
This is how God wants us to come before Him in prayer. And we ought to recognize that on one level, our prayers do something. The reason David was delivered was because David prayed to God. That was the means by which that God accomplished what He wanted to do. He wanted to, to heal him, to deliver him, and He did it through David's prayer. Notice the result of David's deliverance at the end of verse 1. And you have not let my enemies rejoice over me. David sees, and we're going to see this later on in the passage, that if he would have died, it would have given his enemies an opportunity to gloat over him and to smear the name of God in the mud. And so David recognized that, that not only would they gloat over his death, but also David would not be able to give praise to God. If my enemies rejoiced over me, I would no longer, God, be able to praise You in my physical fallen body. And so this was a victory for you, God. So, verses 1-3 through are directed toward God. He's saying, I and you. It's, it's David with his relationship with God. But notice in verse 4, he changes the recipient of his conversation. He's saying, I to you, O Lord, I will exalt you because you, I cried to you, and so on. Verse 4, now you, godly ones, sing praise to the Lord. So because of the deliverance that God has shown to me, then I can't help but praise God and draw you into praising God with me because of what God has done. So let me show you what God has done. This is what David does. This is what our testimony of praise ought to look like. You know, when it's time to give praise to God because of His works, it ought to be praise to God. And it ought to be directing people to praise God. Sometimes the temptation for us when we have opportunity to speak is to draw attention to ourselves and our accomplishments, even if they're spiritual, so that people can look with us Look on us with favor. But what David does here is a model for us in how we ought to give testimony of praise. It is to draw people's view, their attention to the God who heals them. And so that even in our testimonies, it should be, it should be directed toward God. It should be God-glorifying. Verses 4-5, through five, we have testimony of God's deliverance. David gives his testimony of God's deliverance to the people. He turns his attention to the people of God and draws them into praising God. You, his godly ones, notice what God did to me so that you can do the same thing that I did. And what? why should they give thanks? Why should they sing praise to the Lord? That's what verse 4 is talking about, it, the, the demand to praise and give thanks. Notice why, verse 5. Because his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. They should give thanks to God because of God's treatment to David. And they should recognize that the way that God treated David is common, is a common way, a normal way for God to treat all believers. So what they should recognize is that when God spared David from sure physical death, seemingly sure physical death, they should look back on their own lives and recognize that God does the same thing to them. That God grants them deliverance. 
So David's saying, God spared me, verses 1 through 3. Now you give praise, verse 4, because this is the way that God deals with people. God spares His people. And how is He giving praise? How is He commonly relating to believers? Well, verse 5 tells us two things. First, His anger is but for a moment. His anger is but for a moment. Turn to John 3.36. John 3. Because we could ask, well, wait a second. God's anger is for a moment? That doesn't seem to square with John 3.36. So what does David have in mind when he's saying that God's anger is but for a moment? I kind of thought that God's anger lasts for eternity. You know, we have in Revelation that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. We know that hell is an eternal place. So how could God's anger be for a moment? That doesn't sound like a moment. Look at John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son of God will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what do you think? Does it sound like God's anger is for a moment there? So, turn back to Psalm 30 because I think you understand what David is saying. David is not saying that God's righteous anger against the wicked lasts for a moment. You know, it's just there for a short time and then eventually he's going to stop punishing them for their sin. Instead, we understand that God's righteous anger on the wicked lasts for a lifetime or lasts forever. That it doesn't go away. It doesn't stop that hell is eternal. Instead, what David's talking about here at the beginning of verse 5, he's talking about the righteous anger of God on the sin of the righteous. That is, on our sin, when we sin, as one who has been declared to be righteous, God's anger lasts just for a short time, just for a moment. Now, David doesn't talk about why God was angry, why David got to the point of of death. He simply notes that God is angry. Well, what does God's anger look like for believers? We know that God's anger can come in the form of physical suffering. You know, and I think this is where David is. He's at the brink of death. The third line of verse 5 tells us uh, the effect of God's anger. Notice, His anger is for a moment, His favor is for a lifetime, and then weeping may last for a night. The effect of God's anger. When God's anger comes on believers righteously, it, it results in our weeping for the night. For The idea is there that it's a short time and that in the morning it's going to be joy. So as believers, what can whatever can be described as God's anger... We need to think of God's anger as short-lived on us. God's anger towards believers is not the fundamental way that God deals with us. So Christian, if you are always looking over your shoulder and are feeling the weight of your sin without recognizing the great love and compassion that God shows to you, then I would suggest to you you have a misguided view of how God looks at you. As a believer, God is not seething with anger over your sin. I, I love to watch these cooking reality shows 
where they have to compete for the you know to make the best dish dish. You know how you know how it goes. These people a lot of times they're amateurs or even sometimes beyond that, but they they go before these professional judges and how do they respond? You know this is ridiculous. The judges act as the jury and and just nitpick every little thing that's wrong with their dish. And I think as Christians we often think of God in in this way, that He's constantly nitpicking our lives. And He's looking for ways to just make us look foolish. You know, we think all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And, you know, for unbelievers, that's true. All their righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but for believers, it's not true. And the reason we know that is because Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10 says, to find out what's pleasing to the Lord... The implication is that that we can please the Lord. That we our righteousnesses can be a, a sweet aroma before God. So that verse that we often use in Isaiah, our righteousnesses are all as filthy rags, is used improperly. It's not used to describe us. We are God's children and we can please God. And I would suggest to you that instead of thinking of our acts of righteousnesses like we're competing on a cooking show, we should think of it as if we're cooking for our parents, cooking for our father. You know, like a little boy or a little girl would do for his dad's birthday. If my kids were to make a cake for me for my birthday, you know, it would be special to me because it came from them. I'm not going to nitpick that the the cake is uneven and the frosting is a little bit gritty. It's not fully mixed. Tell them that it's undercooked or overcooked. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look at that with joy because it's something that's come from my children. Here's how God looks at your life as a Christian. He's not looking at you with this seething anger. Instead, His anger is just for a moment. Notice the next phrase and park on this in your mind. Meditate on it. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. His favor is for a lifetime. Since the time that you were united with Christ in salvation, you've become a part of God's family and God's favor has rested on you. Oh yes, there are times, verses 1-3, through three, where God's favor is briefly disrupted by an expression of His anger because rightfully so. We've done something to displease Him. But think of it as brief, as a moment, as lasting for a night. That's what the text says. We should think of God's view of us like like the relationship between a parent and a child when a parent has to discipline his child. In our family, there are times when our children disobey and there is a brief time where I'm disappointed with my children and there is an expression of my anger that comes in the form of spanking them but but then my favor is restored and I don't keep dwelling on it I move on they move on they know I still love them and I often remind them that I love them while I'm disciplining them and the same is true for God we may feel at times that our lives are marked by God's seething anger over us. That God doesn't love us. 
And there may be times in which we feel unloved by God for a time, but recognize that He doesn't stop loving you during those times. And that those times of disfavor, of anger that come upon us only are for a moment, but remember what lasts for, his, for a lifetime. It is His favor on you. Recognize that even in the expressions of His anger, His favor is still on us. And we often can't see it as well when we're going through the trial. Hebrews 12 tells us that. It says that the Lord loves those whom He disciplines. And no child loves to be disciplined at the time, but later on it produces a heart of repentance. Have you been disciplined by God? Well, that's not an expression of God's hatred for you. It's an expression of His momentary anger. His short-lived displeasure. His disappointment of you that lasts for just a moment. But the effect of His lifelong anger goes on. Notice the effect of it at the end of verse 5. Remember, the, the effect of His anger is that we weep for a night. The effect of His favor is at the end of verse 5. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. When the dust of God's discipline settles, we see things clearly once again and recognize that, wow, God really does still love me. Paul recognized the temporary anger of God. He recognized this is just a normal thing that Christians go through, that they are going to experience displeasure and they're going to experience sometimes forms of suffering, potentially as a result of their sin. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that it is a momentary and light affliction that's producing in us an eternal weight of glory. Jesus endured the momentary light affliction of the cross, not because of His sin, but, but the point is that we can take from His example that He fixed His eyes on, on what was eternal looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. He, he, he fixed his eyes on what was eternal, and we follow that example by recognizing that God's displeasure of us, while there at times, and while it results in discipline and weeping, it only is for a short time. It's only momentary. God loves us because we are His children, and His favor lasts a lifetime. So, we could end the psalm there. David could have ended the psalm right here. But it seems to me that he continues on in verses 6-12 through 12 to repeat what God had already done. And just to be clear, God's works need to be repeated. They need to be rephrased. They need to be retold. We don't just say them once and say, well, that's enough. People will understand. We, we have to keep repeating them so that the people of God recognize the great works of God and turn to Him to, for praise. And so in verses 6-10, through 10, we have a testimony of praise for spiritual deliverance. Now it's unclear if this spiritual deliverance is connected to the physical deliverance that we talked about in verses 1-5. through 5. But it seems to me that they would be connected since we're talking about discipline in general. And why else would David talk about two separate things? Why would he say, well, I was delivered physically and so you praise God and now... I was also at another time in my life, I was also delivered spiritually, and so maybe we ought to praise God for that. I think these are very much connected. He's just retelling what had already happened. He wants to remind people of it. 
here what he does is he actually drills down a little bit more closely to show us what was going on in his mind when this physical deliverance didn't seem like a possibility. When it seemed like God was far away, when he was on the brink of death, one foot in the grave, David tells us his mind. Verses 6 and 7, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by Your favor, You have made my mountain to stand strong and You hid Your face and I was dismayed. David talks about the, the nature of his sin. This is common among believers that we can get to a place of prosperity and forget God and say things like David says in verse 6, I will never be moved. We look back on our prosperity and it's very easy to praise ourselves whether it be doing well at our job, you know, excelling at our jobs or 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 getting a large amount of money or or or, or being involved in, in somebody's lives and seeing some sort of prosperity, popularity, recognition. We can look back at what we have done and say, that was all me. The most the most uh memorable Example of this for me is Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. A man who sought to please the Lord throughout his theocracy, throughout his kingship in Israel. But it says at the end of his life, when he became strong, his heart became proud. He looked back at what he had accomplished and thought that it was all a result of him. And that's why you have verses like Proverbs 38 and 9. Do not give me poverty nor riches. And don't give me poverty because I don't want to be tempted to steal. But he says in that same verse, don't give me riches. Why would I not want to receive riches? And he gives us the answer in that verse. He says, so that I don't forget God. I may end up with too much prosperity and think, I don't need you, God. I'm going to disown you. I don't need you. I, I got here on my own. And, and he, he asked this question in, in Proverbs 30, Who is the Lord? Why do I need Him? And this is David. He's come to a place of temporary self-sufficiency in his mind. All of the riches, all of the position and power that I now have is a result of me. Notice the expression of this at the end of verse 6. I will never be moved. This is a sad indictment of a child of God because this is how unbelievers talk in Psalm 10, 4, and 6. God's not going to do anything to me. He's not going to move me. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Another example of a group of people who got fat on the grace of God and ended up forgetting Him. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God, by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. 
Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness. And so on. Verse 17, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But Moses says to them, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power. It goes on. Great passage, by the way, to read sometime. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because it gives us a window into how, how susceptible we can be when God has poured out upon us such great riches, prosperity, health. We get to a place like that and we can say like David, I will never be moved because I brought myself here. It was my power, my wisdom, my ingenuity. Beware of the temptation to interpret the fruitfulness that you have in life as a direct result of your own achievements. Beware of forgetting God. The nature of a sin is that he saw for a temporary time, for a moment, that he was self-sufficient. And so God had to humble him. Verse 7, O Lord, by Your favor You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid Your face. I was dismayed. David is reminded here after his affliction that it was God who made his mountain, his monarchy, to be so strong. God reminds us of our complete dependence on Him. And He often does this through difficult circumstances. When we get to a place where we see ourselves as self-sufficient, God sometimes uses difficult circumstances to wake us up. So we start to remember once again that we're not independent. We're dependent completely on Him. He says here that I was dismayed. It felt like, God, You hid Your face from me. And and in a sense, God did. He withdrew His favor. When God does this, there's only one place we can turn. There's only one place we can turn, and it's back to God. You know that's a good thing? When God uses difficult circumstances to remind us of our sufficiency, our God's sufficiency, David reminds the believers and reminds himself in verses 8-10 through of his restoration. His restoration. To You, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. David remembers his cry for help. He remembers his call for mercy. He says to God, God, the basis for why you should bring me out of the pit, bring my one foot out of the grave, It's for your own glory, God. My death doesn't praise you. It doesn't profit you. How How could God 
benefit if David were not rescued. David saying, if, if you rescue me, God, I'm going to use this as a means to tell other people, other believers, of Your great mercy. And that will multiply the praise that I'm giving to You already. I'm going to, to give You praise forever for this, but I'm going to bring others to do the same. Alan Ross says it this way, if God rescues him, he would have every reason to go to the sanctuary and praise God for His faithfulness. God, if You rescue me from this trouble that I'm in, do you realize what kind of praise you can receive? Because I'm going to the sanctuary, I'm going to share this with other believers, and they're going to be reminded very clearly about Your faithfulness. So the ultimate cause of David's rescue is God's goodness But again, I want to make this clear that the immediate cause is David's prayer. God uses David's prayer to rescue him. So we should pray as well. Finally, we see in verses 11-12, through God's deliverance leads to ongoing praise. When God delivers us, It leads to ongoing praise. In times of difficulty, we call out to God. And God answers us. And we respond to God's deliverance with ongoing praise. Notice verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. So David gives us a picture here of what it's like to change his his mentality, his mindset. I had a mindset of mourning. I was on the brink of death. I despaired for my very life. But you turned that mourning into a time of joy, dancing. You've taken off my grieving clothes, my sackcloth, and you've put on clothes of gladness, joyfulness. Notice the extent of His praise in verse 12. That my soul may sing praise to You and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you, notice how long, forever. Have you been there, Christian? Was there a specific time in your life when you were at the brink of death physically or spiritually and God rescued you? If you've been there, then you know that one time of thanksgiving is not enough, is it? You're often reminded of God's goodness to you at that specific time when He spared you from physical or spiritual death, destruction. And so it results in, like it does for David, continual praise to Him. Not just, thank you for saving my life right there. Thank you for sparing me. But thank you for sparing me here. Then here, and, and as we go on through life, we think back to that time when God spared us. And so it results in what I would call ongoing praise. It's like if you were mountain climbing and you let go of the rope and you began to fall and you thought you were going to fall to your certain death and yet you were spared by the safety rope that was connected to someone else. And while the recovery was not easy, you looked back on that incident with great praise because God had protected you from death. 
And once you recover from that terrifying fall, you get back to mountain climbing again. And maybe you see someone else fall to their near death. Or you see someone fall to their actual death. And it reminds you of what God did to you. How He spared you that time. And how that any moment, you could fall again. And that it's God's grace that sustained you, that God sustained you back then, God is continuing to sustain you. Or maybe you begin to slip the next time you go mountain climbing. And it reminds you once again of what God has done. You see, His mercy is so great that it deserves repeating. God deserves ongoing thanksgiving because of His mercy. How do we give thanksgiving through all of life? We have commands in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, Ephesians 5, to give thanks in everything. How do we do this? When we recognize that our confidence is not in our circumstances, nor in our ability to, to, to accomplish things through our that is, our ability to, to get where we want on our own, but when our confidence is in God, then we will be thankful because God is the great reverser of circumstances. We know this because we've seen it in the work of Jesus on our behalf. If you have been rescued by God, praise Him for His enduring faithfulness. He rescued you from the pit where you belonged, where I belonged because of our sin. And if you are at a place physically or spiritually, where you are on the brink, or you have one foot in the grave and God continually spares you, remember that His anger is only temporary. His apparent disfavor of you is only short-lived. His grace, His favor lasts for a lifetime. When God spares us from these things, it ought to drive us to give ongoing praise to God and draw others to do the same. We must call others to praise God because of how He has worked in us. Invite other believers to praise God with you because of what God has done to you. Our lives are lived between the mountains and the valleys of life, aren't they? Where we are brought low and lifted up. We have times of delight and times of despair. Times of mourning, times of dancing. And that's where our thanksgiving comes in. It helps us to rise above our circumstances that are just constantly moving. Our thanksgiving helps us to rise above and see the horizon, what God is ultimately doing. And recognize that these things are important, but they ultimately don't matter. They're only a means to an end. God is building in in us something great. And our thanksgiving helps us to, in a way, disembody ourselves from our experiences so that we do not become too proud when we're up on the mountaintops and say, look what I did. Or we don't despair so much when we're down in the valleys because we know that there's joy in the morning. There's going to be shouts of joy that these times of, of sackcloth, which are normal for believers, we're going to have those times of grieving because of our sin or because of some difficult circumstances. 
but we have to recognize that those are going to be changed with garments of gladness. Why? Because we know ultimately that when we're down low, God's disfavor only lasts for a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. And God uses all of those circumstances, both the highs and the lows, to help us dependently trust in Him. To, to put our sufficiency in Him. So that when we get too high of ourselves, because we think we accomplished it because of our self-sufficiency, God helps to humble us. And so thanksgiving is the thing that helps us to keep on top of those, those changes in life. We're constantly thankful because we recognize that God's favor is ultimately on us. We know it's on us because of Jesus Christ. That, that God loves us as we love our children. God loves us even more than that because we are His children. And so we can praise God with ongoing praise, continually reminding ourselves and being reminded of what God has done in the past for us and drawing other people to do the same. Let's pray. Father, there are verses in the Scripture that are especially uh, powerful to us. And this verse here in the middle of this psalm is one of those that we cling to, particularly in times of difficulty that we have in life. Sometimes our difficulty comes as a result of our own pride, our own sin. Other times it's just a, a means by which You are refining us, making us more like Your Savior, purifying us for the day when we will pre be presented before our Savior as spotless. And so while it's difficult and, and unwanted by us at times, we can rise above that because we know and think like Paul does that these are only momentary and light afflictions, but they produce in us something that lasts forever that, is, and it, that provides an eternal weight of glory. So Lord, we pray that You would help us to fix our eyes on You and to be people of thanksgiving, to, to, to continually give praise to You because of what You have done in the past and what You are doing now. And then help us to use our circumstances and the clear examples of Your favor to draw other people to praise You for Your grace, for sparing us from seemingly certain destruction. You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And we trust in You. We trust in Your favor. And we want to respond rightly tonight to what we have heard from Your Word. So give us clear ways that we can put this into practice tonight, this week. Throughout this year, we don't know what kind of difficult trials we're going to face what kind of valleys we're going to have to walk through. We don't know what kind of mountaintops we're going to be standing on and then looking back and, and maybe giving credit only to ourselves. During that time, we can be confident that You will always be with us, drawing us 
to yourselves, to yourself. And so we pray that you'd help us to see that and to help us to see that your discipline is actually good for us. That produces fruit of righteousness, which we want to see for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.